0: And we are back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial, and the rest of the world at our new website at cfmu.ca. And I believe we are joined today by Zafar Bengash. He's an Islamic scholar and an editor of uh, Crescent Online. Zafar, are you with us today?
1: Yes, hello, Brendan. Oh, hi.
0: hi. (laughs) Hey, Zafar, it's great to hear from you. Um, It's been uh, probably a while since we've had you live on the program.
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: Well, it's funny actually. Uh, we uh, last week we're going to play your recent interview with the Taylor Report at the beginning of June, um, but there was a, a communication error between the hosts, and uh, we we weren't able to play it. Uh, but now we have the next. Actually, one one thing better. Uh, because now we have you live and there's uh, been a number of recent uh, developments since you were last on the Taylor report talking about uh, Kashmir and the Qatar Saudi split and other issues so uh, I'm very glad to have you today because there's a lot of uh, hot topics to touch on here um, Now um, again, I'm very grateful for your time on this certainly there's a lot to go through. We have the situation in Kashmir uh, which is not something that we receive a lot of news about here in Canada. Uh, we're not very well informed but I understand that the the rebellion there, again Against occupation has has been intensifying recently. Uh, There's been some clashes and some very visible incidents. I'm wondering if you can tell us what caused this rebellion and and, and why we're having this this latest upsurge.
1: Well, as you pointed out, um, uh, this uh, uprising uh, has been going on for a very long time, uh, in fact, uh, over many decades. Although, regrettably, uh, here in Canada or in North America in general, we don't get uh, much news about it. It somehow seems to not uh, attract uh, much uh, attention, either uh, at the political level or in the mainstream media. But uh, there is an ongoing uh, uprising. Uh, The people are in the streets uh, virtually every day. Uh, even though the Indian Army of Occupation uh, maintains a 24-7 curfew in most uh, urban centers, um, yet the people defy those curfews because they feel that their basic uh, rights are being grossly violated. Just to give you an example, uh, two nights ago, now we are in the month of Ramadan, and of course uh, the population of Kashmir is overwhelmingly Muslim, Uh, and and people observe uh, fasting during the day, and then at night they have uh, late-night prayers. And two nights ago, in a village called uh, Batgam, the Indian army uh, attacked the village right in the middle of the night, and they started to bang on people's doors, demanding that they come out. Now, just consider the fact that these people had been fasting the whole day. Then they went for their nightly prayers, and Perhaps they finished their nightly prayers by about 11 p.m. or midnight. And they had just gone to sleep, and they were going to be getting up again at 3 a.m. for their pre-dawn meal. And here you have the Indian Army with their guns and and bullhorns and so on uh, banging on people's doors and demanding that they come out. And, and of course, you know, people are woken up, they are startled, they open the doors, they come out, and the army barges in, start beating people up with rifle butts, they've beaten up women, children, old men. They drag the men out and they beat them outside, the women are beaten inside. This happened two nights ago, and, of course, this leads to another cycle of protests. Uh, In the morning, then people come out when they hear that these kinds of terrible things have happened. And, of course, the Indian Army also take away any young men that they suspect might be sympathizers with the freedom movement. And so it's entirely at the whim of the occupation forces as to who they take away, who they spare. And, uh, of course, people have disappeared for decades now. Uh, their their families don't even know whether whether their loved ones are dead or alive. And uh, we do get news periodically of mass graves being discovered, and when um, uh, forensic tests are done, DNA tests are done, then they discover some relatives or others of people. But the fact that these mass graves are in different areas, uh, it is very difficult to do all of the tests given the conditions, Uh, in that area. And just to give you a further piece of information, uh, India maintains uh, 700,000 troops in Kashmir. That's military force. Then they have about 250,000 border security forces. These are forces that face the Pakistan army on the line of control in Kashmir. And then they have their paramilitary forces. So you have something like a million to 1.1 million armed personnel, heavily armed forces in Kashmir for a total population of about 16 million.
0: Yes. I mean, it was those latter points that I was especially curious about, uh, because as you've said, this occupation has gone on for decades, and the military presence there is extreme. Uh, there are soldiers everywhere, and they, I guess they're putting people through daily humiliations. Is is this these practices, having these soldiers stopping people and beating people up on suspicion, all of these things, is, is this l- like wh- legal? By what rationale can, can they do this?
1: It is totally illegal because uh, the UN and the Geneva Conventions uh, recognize uh, India as an occupying power, and under the Geneva Conventions, an occupying power is uh, is prohibited from uh, stopping people uh, in the streets, carrying out uh, searches, or preventing food and medicines reaching to the people or putting them under lockdown, and any of these other restrictive measures that they have imposed. Now, because of the fact that uh, Kashmir has been under extended periods of curfew, uh, food is extremely um, limited. Similarly, uh, medicines, uh, people needing desperately needed medicines cannot get them because they can't even get to the hospitals. People needing, for instance, insulin for diabetes, people that need um, treatment for cancer or other kinds of ailments uh, are unable to get, uh, get to either to the hospitals or to get medications. Uh, so what the Indian Army is doing is completely illegal, and yet for some reason or another it does not get registered anywhere. Now, to, to just sort of add to your uh, listeners' uh, information, Uh, The latest round of uh, protests that uh, intensified, they occurred uh, actually last year in July when a young freedom fighter, a 22-year-old young man by the name of Burhan Wani, who was uh, surrounded in a village uh, by the Indian army, and they could have captured him alive, but they didn't do that. Uh, They deliberately killed him and two of his companions. And then the Indian Army very proudly announced uh, that they had killed this man. Uh, This was on July the 8th of 2016. And the very next morning, although the Indian Army imposed a curfew, but in the capital city, Srinagar, more than 200,000 people poured out into the streets in protest. Now, to get 200,000 people into the streets, uh, this was a totally spontaneous act on the part of the people. And the reason was that Burhan Wani, a young, charismatic, uh, Robin Hood-type character, he had become very active uh, on the social media, and he would urge people to stand up for their rights and to protest the brutalities of the Indian army and not be cowed down by their brutalities. And so since July of 2016, there have been constant protests in major cities in Kashmir, in cities like Sirinagar, Badgaon, Islamabad, and other places, and people by the tens of thousands come out. And the Indian Army has now resorted to another weapon which they refer to as pellet guns. Now, these are uh, bullets that spray hundreds of pellets into people's faces. So literally, thousands of people have been blinded by being shot by these pellets that are fired into their faces. The children peeping out of their uh, bedroom windows, uh, sitting in their homes. If, let's say, there is a protest going on, these soldiers would, in a a very uh, cruel and sadistic manner, fire these bullets at these children peeping out of the windows and turn them blind. So this has happened, this has gone on, and even the United Nations Human Rights uh, Commission uh, has uh, called for not only stopping these practices, but it has called for a thorough investigation of indian army practices and the un uh, um, uh, human rights commission has called for investigation teams to be sent to indian occupied kashmir but india has adamantly refused to allow them it refuses to allow any human rights organizations even indian human rights organizations are not allowed to go there the only human rights organization that report from there are the Kashmiri human rights organizations that are in Srinagar, and if they are able to send out any information outside to other human rights organizations, that is how the world gets uh, this news that some terrible things are going on over there. And since this uh, the latest round of uh, uprising began not just in July of 2016, but it dates back to February of 1989 so far, more than 100,000 Kashmiris have been killed by the Indian army. There are about 56,000 Kashmiri youth that have disappeared. Nobody knows anything about them. More than 11,000 Kashmiri women have been raped. The Indian army uses rape as a weapon of war. They know that Kashmiri women, because they are Muslim, they they do value their their, um, honor and so on they deliberately indulge in raping them very often in front of their sons or their husbands or their fathers to humiliate them. And these are all documented. This is not just uh, Kashmiris that say that, but, in fact, Indian human rights organizations have also confirmed this. And some um, uh, fair-minded Indian journalists and commentators, among them I would mention that wonderful lady Arundhati Roy, who has faced tremendous pressure from the Indian fascists and the the Nazi groups that operate over there, she has spoken out repeatedly that uh, what India is doing is uh, it is perpetrating war crimes against the Kashmiri people, and if they don't want to be part of India, then India should allow them to hold a referendum that was promised to them back in 1948-1949, and that referendum pledge is enshrined in 18 separate Security Council resolutions, and it was India that had taken that matter to the Security Council, asking the Security Council to intervene because the people had risen up against Indian occupation. And, of course, a war had broken out between India and Pakistan, and the Kashmiri people together with the Pakistan army were on the verge of liberating the whole of Kashmir, when India took the matter to the United Nations Security Council and said that they would like to have this resolved through the Security Council. And both India and Pakistan agreed to the the, uh, the holding of a referendum under UN supervision. And yet uh, India has been backtracking ever since. It was just using the Security Council as a shield to tighten its grip on Kashmir. And so, unfortunately, because those resolutions caused, called for a ceasefire, so the army stood at the points, whatever territories they were holding. No uh, changes could occur to the border, so basically uh, the Pakistani army and the Kashmiris that are living on the Pakistan side that referred to, that refer themselves to as Azad Kashmir, which means Free Kashmir, uh, hold about one-third of Kashmir territory, while India holds the other two-thirds. And there have never been any uprisings or protests in the Pakistani side. There have always been uprisings and protests on the Indian side. And as I said, at least 100,000 people since 1989 have been killed. Tens of thousands have disappeared. There are torture chambers in India. There are horrible, horrible things that are happening over there, away from the world's attention because India refuses to allow any journalist to visit there. And even if some do, of course, you know, regrettably, the political environment is such that the Western world in particular uh, does not pay much attention to the suffering of the Kashmiri people because uh, the Western world would rather uh, get along with the, the government in India that it sees uh, and India that it sees as a market for Western goods because there are probably about 300 million Indians with surplus cash that the Western world wants to utilize to send uh, material goods to. So, as far as the 16 million Kashmiris are concerned, uh, their lives do not matter and they are ignored by the international community.
0: Yes, it sounds like a great situation of occupation. And resistance with ugly things happening, signature wounds, people being blinded in, in, in that fashion, becoming endemic. Um, it, you know, and uh, there's parallels to other occupations and great powers turning a blind eye to it. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, we are speaking with Zafar Bengash, an Islamic scholar, and with Crescent Online. Um, and uh, Zafar, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you know India has has a problem with uh, with sovereignty, with occupation, with respecting international law. And I mean that 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 is. Um, seemingly a common problem these days. We also have, of course, in another part of the world, some countries that have great difficulty with respecting the law and, and sovereignty and people's rights. Uh, I'm thinking especially of s- the Saudi situation right now. There, We have a, a split w- between uh, Saudi-led countries and Qatar. Um, and, um, I mean, there's, a, there's now a lot of news coming out about that, although it's difficult to follow. I mean, uh, I- this situation seems to have occurred shortly after President Trump visited Saudi Arabia. And, and you know they all sat around the crystal ball. But I'm wondering, you know, what what happened at that meeting that caused Saudi Arabia to make these demands on Qatar and, and the situation where they think they can single out that country.
1: Well, you see, uh, Qatar has been uh, following uh, a fairly independent uh, foreign policy uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia and the other members of what is referred to as the Gulf Cooperation Council. And that, of course, as always, irked Saudi Arabia. Uh, But as you pointed out, uh, soon after, um, Trump was in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh from May 20th to the 22nd. And, of course, there he signed these massive, massive arms deals, $110 billion immediately, and uh, it's going to to go up to $350 billion in the next decade. Once he had these arms deals under uh, his arm, uh, then he basically gave a green light to the Saudis to do whatever they wanted. And, and of course, you know, over there, uh, Trump, in a, in a most ridiculous and bizarre manner, also accused uh, Iran of being a sponsor and supporter of terrorism, whereas he totally ignored the fact that Saudi Arabia itself is a terrorism factory. All of these terrorists that are rampaging throughout the Middle East are provided funding, training, arms, and even ideological support by Saudi Arabia. Well, you know, we, I got to
0: I got to interrupt there because you you've brought an important point in here, and 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 we can come come back to it in a number of ways. I mean, just recently, you know, I, I, as we can easily see, Iran suffered from a terrorist attack, and people don't understand this here in the West, uh, and it's no accident, but. Uh, Iran has been primarily a victim of terrorism in the past few decades, not some kind of exporter of terrorism. And and they seem to be a victim now of of these groups that are sponsored by Saudi ideology. I'm wondering, you know, on on that note, in in relation to that, can you tell us about this this terrorist attack that occurred in Iran and and, and how it relates to the the policy that the Saudis and, and some of these Gulf countries have been putting out?
1: exactly you see it was exactly a week ago june the 7th that the parliament of iran as well as the, the mausoleum of uh, imam khomeini in southern tehran w- were attacked both these places were attacked by heavily armed terrorists there are two, there are two of them that attacked the mausoleum where of course you know ordinary people go to pay their respects to the founder of the islamic republic and they go and you know pray over there there is a mosque there uh, and these are just uh, what you would call pilgrims to, to that site. Um, and and then on, on the parliament, there were uh, uh, basically four people heavily armed. Uh, incidentally, in both instances, these terrorists were dressed as women. And in Iran, obviously, women are respected, so there was not much checking of them. These people were carrying explosives. They had explosive belts around their bodies. Uh, they had Kalashnikov rifles and so on. And they, uh, they one uh, terrorist blew himself up at the entrance to the vast complex of the mausoleum. He couldn't get anywhere near the the, the, the grave of uh, Imam Khomeini. But you know, because that complex is very, very large, uh, and the other terrorist was killed by security guards. Uh, whereas at, at the parliament building, uh, the, when these terrorists entered the building. Of course there were guards over there um, and there were people waiting in a waiting area to meet their MPs and that's where they opened fire and there was an exchange of gunfire. Um, One terrorist was killed there and one of the guards was also killed there. Then these terrorists managed to go to the top of the parliament building and there was of course an exchange of gunfire with, with other guards and then the police and army were also mobilized and these terrorists were killed. I also want to mention that while this terrorist attack was going on, uh, the uh, the Parliament was in session, and the Parliament did not break its session, even though they were notified that there is a terrorist attack. Every member of Parliament, they said, we will continue with our session, and when they heard that these terrorists had attacked, they stood up and they, uh, you know, uh, raised slogan against these terrorists, and they said that these terrorists are not going to intimidate us. They're not going to stop us from carrying out our duties as members of uh, the parliament and representatives of our people. Compare that to what happened in Ottawa in October of 2014, when a lone nutcase gunman had entered the parliament building. Our brave prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, hid in a closet. And he, he closeted himself over there. He was, From the information we have, he was shivering in his, in his boots. And, and so you see that in Iran, those people are aware of the threats that they face and the terrorists, the, the terrorists that attack them, but they're not afraid of them. They stood their ground. They said, we are not going to be uh, distracted by these minor incidents. The security guards will deal with them, whatever. And if these people come, and, in, come into this chamber, then so be it. We are prepared to accept the consequences of that. These terrorists were actually sent by Saudi Arabia. I say that. I say this on record, for the public record, and let me give you proof of that. Exactly on June, uh, uh, on on May the 2nd, the Saudi defense minister, who also happens to be the deputy crown prince and son of the king, uh, this defense minister, Mohammed bin Salman, in an interview with the Saudi television, he said that Iran is our enemy and we are going to fight them, and we are going to take this fight to Iran. We are not going to allow them to come and fight us on our soil. We are going to go and fight them on their soil. This is a man who is the defense minister of Saudi Arabia, who is the deputy crown prince and the son of the king, who publicly said this. That means that he was taking responsibility for these terrorists that, are, that went on a rampage in Iran. A day before this terrorist attack occurred, The Saudi foreign minister, Adil al-Jubeir, said that uh, we are going to deal with Iran, and we are going to punish them because they are our enemies, one day before the attack occurred. And then a day after the attack occurred, Adil al-Jubeir was in Germany, and a journalist asked him, do you condemn the terrorist attack that occurred in Iran? And he said, next question. He refused to answer the question. He would not condemn those terrorist attacks.
0: Well, it the United States did not condemn. I mean, the United States said, hey, we're s- sorry to hear you had a terrorist attack, but it was your fault. It's blowback from your actions. Uh, you know, it, it, the U.S. and the Saudis are really can't bring themselves to uh, condemn a terrorist attack in a parliament uh, in, in Iran. And, and, and it relates to what you are getting to with Saudi policy at this very moment, where the countries, the Saudi princes, and uh, they think they have the wind in their sails. So they're going after Qatar. Uh, they are loosening uh, their dogs on Iran. So can, can, can you tell us about what, why they think they can do this, what they, they think they can get away with, what their goals are in this situation where they want to advance on a number of fronts?
1: With respect to Qatar, obviously, they have uh, several um, concerns. One, as I mentioned, that Qatar has been following an independent foreign policy, and in that sense, Qatar has said that Iran is our neighbor, and we need to get along with it, and Iran has done us no harm, and so we shouldn't be uh, indulging in any kinds of activities. Secondly, uh, the thing that really bugs the Saudis is uh, this Al Jazeera television, especially Al Jazeera Arabic that beams into these countries, and Al Jazeera has been uh, reporting on some of the uh, shenanigans and the dirty tricks and deals that these Saudi princes uh, have been indulging in, and that obviously irks them a lot. In fact, one of the conditions that the Saudis uh, uh, demanded of Qatar to restore diplomatic relations and to sort of normalize relations again was that uh, Qatar must shut down Al Jazeera. And so you can see that as far as uh, Saudi Arabia is concerned, uh, they want to shut down Al Al Jazeera. They want Qatar to not have any relations with Iran uh, because the Saudis have cut off relations with Iran, although as a consequence of the Saudi policy, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council that was established back in 1981, and it was supposed to be a security arrangement and an economic and political arrangement, it has now virtually fallen apart because of the six members, three are on one side, three on the other. Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and United Arab Emirates are on one side, and Qatar is much further ahead, but Oman and Kuwait have refused to uh, go by these Saudi demands. Now, with respect to your question as to why do the Saudis uh, think that they can get away with it, it is because they think that now they have the backing of Trump and that they have got a green light from Donald Trump and from Israel, because the Israelis are also now on the same page as the Saudis. So although there are no diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, but there are close contacts between the two, and they're all going after Iran, which has been a victim of terrorism for decades. Immediately after the revolution in Iran, the the, the various terrorist groups, the MKO and others, In fact, they were put on a U.S. uh, terror list back in 1997, and then they were taken off that list. Uh, I think it was about 2011 or whatever that this group was then taken off the terrorist list, although this group, MKO, were responsible for killing a large number of Americans also in Iran. And so the MKO terrorists were involved in killing about 1,200 leading officials of Iran after the revolution, these included ministers, these included a president, a prime minister, members of parliament, leading political figures, uh, religious scholars, university professors, and so on, and even ordinary people because they would plant bombs in cars and in public places. And of course, ultimately uh, they were they were driven out of Iran. Many of them were arrested and, and put on trial for their uh, crimes, etc, and punished. Uh, And so although the MKO is not really a credible threat in Iran, now you have these other terrorists, ISIS and uh, Daesh or whatever you call them, that are now backed by Saudi Arabia. And these terrorists that had carried out the terrorist operations in Iran last week had actually been active in Syria and Iraq as well in terrorist activities in Raqqa and in other places. In fact, Iran's intelligence ministry said that they had in the last year uh, foiled at least 36 terrorist groups trying to carry out terrorist acts and in fact even the day that this ter- these terrorist attacks occurred in tehran another group had been foiled but this group somehow managed to escape the, the security forces in iran but the fact that uh, these uh, groups uh, uh, have started their operations inside iran is the direct result of the policies of the Saudi regime. And they've been carrying out these horrible um, crimes in in Yemen, dirt-poor Yemen, where more than 12,000 people have been killed. There is now a cholera epidemic. The United Nations has said that at least 22 million of Yemen's 24 million people are on the verge of starvation. Uh, And so, you know, the Saudis have perpetrated horrible crimes over there. They're not getting anywhere even in Yemen but they've opened a new front against Qatar by way of trying to uh, undermine Iran. But the way the whole situation has evolved is that Qatar has received support from Iran and Turkey, as well as from Russia, by the way. Russia has said that we are prepared to help you because Qatar is totally food dependent, and Iran has sent plane loads of food as well as a ship to Qatar. Turkey has done likewise. And Russia has said that whatever help you need, we are prepared to offer you. So it seems that Qatar is not as isolated as the Saudis think they have got Qatar isolated, and this is another perhaps nail in the Saudi coffin because they are digging their own grave, and I think as a consequence of their ill-conceived policies that they are making far too many enemies, they are not able to uh, deal with the situation rationally, and I think they are really, really uh, coming to the end of their own miserable existence.
0: Well, they've certainly demonstrated overconfidence in Syria, Yemen, and possibly now even in Qatar, as we see. Uh, you know, Trump came over, insulted them in various ways, then pat them on the back, and they thought that they had carte blanche to do whatever they want. But uh, it's going to blow back on them. And you know, the Canadians don't understand j- how extensively uh, these terrorist attacks that people are concerned about—Manchester, London, Paris, and elsewhere—are much. Uh, they're very closely tied to the Saudi world view and and what they've been promoting uh in, in their campaigns against various uh sex religions and and so on um and and now iran is becoming directly a victim of this conflict as well and uh, uh you know it, it's a, it's a sad situation but it's also an acceleration of the sort of inherent problems and and corruption and decay within saudi arabia itself um now uh, despite this uh, somewhat uh, rather unfortunate news in some respects um i mean there there are people uh doing things uh to uh, condemn various occupations, uh, to condemn various injustices in the world right here in Canada. Um, and I know in the case of Kashmir, which we spoke of earlier, um, there is a gentleman who's going to be coming over shortly uh, to speak. And then we have Al-Quds Day on, on the subject of Palestine. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about those two upcoming events.
1: Sure. Let me first deal with Al-Quds Day, which is going to be on Saturday, uh, June the 24th. Uh, no, uh, it will be at Queen's Park, north of Queen's Park, at 3 p.m. And from there, uh, the, the, they march to the U.S. consulate. So it's every year, and thousands of people attend. And I hope that uh, your listeners would also join, because this is something that is ongoing in Palestine and in uh, Al Quds, etc. With respect to Kashmir, yes, you're right. There is Lord Nazir Ahmed from England, who is a member of the All-Parties Parliamentary Committee on Kashmir in the British House of Commons, or the British Parliament, by the way. And and he's been associated with uh, the struggle for, of the Kashmiri people for a very long time. He himself is originally from Kashmir, and he uh, mobilizes uh, global public opinion, uh, especially of parliamentarians in different parts of the world. So he'll be coming to Canada, and there'll be a program in Toronto on July the 15th, which is a Saturday, and this program would be in Toronto, and Lord Nazir Ahmed would be speaking as well as a number of other speakers to uh, highlight the plight of the Kashmiri people and their suffering and what people can do to uh, mobilize global public opinion to facilitate uh, the Kashmiri people to hold a referendum to decide their own future. So I hope that uh, your listeners would um, join us in this effort. Uh, To welcome Lord Nazir Ahmed, who is a very uh, articulate person, Uh, he's he's very well spoken. He's fully aware of the situation there, and I'm sure it will be a very enlightening evening. And there'll also be a documentary shown on uh, the the, what is going on in Kashmir, so that people can get a first-hand account of the situation. Of the plight of the Kashmiri people,
0: I hear he's a good speaker, like George Galloway. Uh, what would you know? Where the building or what location he's speaking at? On he'll, f-
1: he'll, he'll be coming to Toronto. He'll be speaking uh, in uh, at our center in Richmond Hill at 1380 Stovall Road, which is in Richmond Hill. Uh, we have had we have hosted him many times before. Uh, as you mentioned, he's a very good speaker. He's also a very very um, you know not only very articulate, but he also has a great sense of humor. And he sort of you know not only is able to talk about serious issues, but he can even present the serious issues in a way that uh, he brings an element of humor into it to give it a human touch so that people can understand uh, that, that you know, uh, there is suffering, and yet uh, the Kashmiri people uh, have not given up, they have not been cowed down, and that they have some very powerful voices uh, globally uh, that are willing to speak on their behalf to bring their plight to the attention of the rest of the world.
0: All right. Well, I look forward to seeing this, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about some of these issues. I know we had a lot to catch up on today, but maybe we'll bring more developments as they come. So, Zafar, thanks very much. Um, We'll get this out as soon as possible. Your interviews have been doing well online in the last few weeks, and you've been bringing very present and relevant information. So uh, thanks again for being on the program with us today.
1: It's my great pleasure, Brandon, and I look forward to talking to you again in the near future.
0: Okay. Catch you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. and, of course, that was Zafar Bangash, an Islamic scholar. Uh, he's with Crescent Online. You can find his articles on the Internet. And, um, yes, um, we have that event coming up on July 15th, so keep your calendar open. Um, and um, Al-Quds Day as well, uh, which is always a big event. Anyway, there's going to be some, uh, we got some other good content coming up, uh, so stay tuned.